Hello, this is Bill Chambers, and welcome to the Faster Podcast. My objective is to interview the most interesting people in the rowing world, and in the next 45 minutes, get insights and even discover how it is that they do what they do, what makes them unique and fascinating, their success mindset, and certainly what they do to go fast. Sounds good. Well, let's kick it off. So, Valerie, fantastic to connect with you. I've been meaning to do this for a long time because over the last few years, I've been reading article after article that you have been publishing about biomechanics and rowing. You keep on popping up in all these books like uh, Volcan Alte's uh, book. You've got a whole chapter on biomechanics. Um, it seems that all the all the rowing teams and and the coaches uh refer to you you know so um i'm really pleased to be able to spend some time with you and to to have a conversation with you for our listeners yeah uh, i would be really happy to to do it and uh, yeah let's uh, let's see if it'll be interested <laughs> interesting for you guys yeah. well mate i think you're you're an interesting guy and i think i'd like to I mean, not many people um, probably know a lot about your background, Valerie. So maybe, you know, from one Australian to another, although, you know, a lot of people might not know that you're Australian, you can give us some background about your, your story because I believe you've been to an Olympics, a world championship, you've, you've rowed, you've won silver medals, bronze medals, and you've, you've done the whole thing. So where did you start off on your journey? Yeah, I think, thanks God, I have um, quite unique, um, you know, opportunity and quite unique experience, um, like living and working in um, three different countries, um, actually four, it was Soviet Union, then collapsed and converted into independent countries, Russia, I was, I was born actually in um, St. Petersburg, second largest city of um, Soviet Union and Russia, which used to be the capital of Russian Empire for more than 200 years. And uh, I really like that city, and I'm not sure if you've been there, and um, it has some special spirit, you know, and, um, uh, you know, everything, architecture, buildings, people, uh, people call it actually culture capital of uh, Russia, Moscow is sort of political business capital, and uh, Saint Petersburg is cultural capital. Uh, it's quite big city, five million people now. And, and, and you and you grew up there. In- yes, yes. Uh, I am. My I was born and grew up there, and my parents also um, grew up in Saint Petersburg. They survived actually the awful, terrible time during second world war that was siege of saint petersburg a lot of people died and uh, it's another uh, part of the history of of the city did did that have much of an influence on your um on your schooling and upbringing that that background of of the siege and having to survive through that period well, uh, as I said, it's uh, it's like cultural capital. So um, education was pretty good, and um, 
actually I was uh, good in uh, sciences in math and physics and um, also surrounded by cultural museums. My mother used to take me to, you know, Hermitage, Russian Museum quite often, theaters, uh, all sorts of culture. And uh, of course it helps, you know, to develop your brain and vision and, uh, uh, you know, most of the political elite in Russia now came from St. Petersburg, including current president, Mr. Putin, and other top politicians, they came from <laughs> St. Petersburg. There is even a joke like uh, St. Petersburg became empty because all, you know, smart people go to, went to Moscow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to do a nice. political job, yeah. <laughs> And and did your did your parents did they uh, were they involved in rowing? No, not really. Uh, no, no. But it uh, it was common, uh, very common. You know, in Soviet Union, it was quite good system of sport, uh, sport education. Basically, it was free clubs, sporting clubs. So it's like um, after school, uh, the Kids go to different sort of football, athletics, gymnastics, and and rowing as well. And it mm -hmm. was free. It was free, and coaches uh, were full paid by government. Basically, it was government system of uh, of sport. And I think it was um, very good system. And just um, jumping a little bit ahead, uh, it was borrowed. Uh, a lot uh, by in Australia because when I was in Australia Institute of Sport, they didn't hide that uh, they borrowed that and learned from Eastern European and Soviet and East Germany systems, mm -hmm. sport, sporting systems in terms of um, organization, sports science involvement, and uh, it really was an effective system and. Um, so, wow, so that's really interesting. So, so I know we're going to go back to to your your schooling and that, but kind of what year are we talking about that the AIS, that's for, that's the Australian Institute of Sport for yeah. our listeners. When when were they really getting all their intelligence from the Eastern Blocs and from Russia? When do you think their major influence was? Uh, it's all well described, I think, on their website. Basically, it was it started after disaster in uh, Montreal Olympics when Australia got only one bronze medal in 1976, mm -hmm. and it was great success for Soviet Union, which um, was on the top of medal medals. And I think East Germany came second, even in front of US. Uh, mm. uh, East Germany done really well. I think it was top performance. And uh, uh, people from in Australia got only one bronze medal, which was somewhere in the, uh, in the bottom of the list. And uh, they decided they need to do something and uh, start searching, of course, why, and visited uh, Soviet Union and uh, East Germany and learned how the system works. And I think they built really good system in Australia. When I was in AIS, I think it was best the best 
uh, working place for me ever. And, and it was really when I was there, of course, I'm not sure what happening now, but that time it was really good combination of sports science. I, I was sports scientist already and practical coaching and athletes, uh, administration were under one roof and it worked really efficiently, I think. So Valerie, going, going back to your, your school and, and growing up in St. Petersburg, around what year were you uh, introduced to rowing and what was that like for you? Actually, uh, first, firstly, I did swimming, actually, and I started really early, I think six years old, even before school. I remember uh, my like kindergarten, uh, sort of child care, which was also free for everyone. I uh, was quite close to swimming pool uh, of um, uh, belongs swimming pool belongs to technical university where my mom used uh, worked that time had been working that time so uh, straight after uh, he finished her job and took me from kindergarten and uh, I I was going to uh, swimming pool and I did it till uh, I think 14 years old so it's uh, quite a long time eight years I did swimming and uh, was quite good results but then not so good and uh, when I was swimmer actually I was um, I went into special boarding school sports school mm -hmm. and uh, as a swimmer and uh, it was uh, also invention of Eastern sports system. Basically, it was like boarding school. People, uh, they invited the best talents, uh, young athletes, not only from the St. Petersburg, they also from uh, from that region, northeast, uh, sorry, northwest of, um, of Soviet Union. And uh, children can live there and um, the the timetable was organized such a way that they they can we, can, we could train twice a day in the morning. Wow! Yeah, wow. yeah. Then lessons started somewhere about eleven um, in the morning, and then we did lesson until three or four, and then it was second session. And, and you you were identified as a swimmer, right? Yes, so you I went was, into this system as a swimmer. Yes. And how did they identify you? They just watched at the races or or your coach um, nominated you for this program? Uh, it's actually just based on results because that time actually it was, uh, this time we would call it online, but that mm -hmm. time it was published in news, newspapers basically. It was uh, every club uh, had a standard program of uh, races. And uh, because in swimming, it's very easy to compare results because it's like standard conditions, uh, 25 or 15 meters swimming pool. And those re uh, results from kids from all Soviet Union were compared somewhere and uh, published in newspapers who, who was the fastest and who uh, and just ranking uh, all, yeah, yeah. all over the country yeah. and uh, a couple of times uh, I, I i won that uh, competition i was on the top of the list and, and breaststroke swimming uh, 100 and 200 so basically uh, yeah it was uh, 
quite well organized system and based on that results I got I was invited to that boarding school. Can you imagine if you grew up in Australia mate you'd probably be doing surf life saving and you would have been picked for the Aussie team swimming. Yeah. That would have been a different <laughs> that would have been a different uh, trajectory for you. So you go into school you're you're at the top of the league tables with with the swimming but you're also academic you've got a, a taste for the academia so I'm guessing you like it your parents are intellectuals and you how did you balance that with you know the the sport twice a day and then you start the academia what was that like for you well um well actually what i want to say in swimming uh, even before that board in school in my club uh, i got very good motivation and this is quite funny story could be interesting for you because um, uh, how i got that motivation you know to get the uh, on the top of in the sport uh, we had quite good coach in our uh, swimming club and uh, also in soviet union it was a published a series of books um, called stars of world sport basically they published a book about top world athletes olympic champions and multiple world champions and the coach uh, just read us uh, sometimes in between sessions and i just remember it was quite often uh, during the summer camps we had a summer camps actually in somewhere other uh, cities uh, in latvia other republics uh, the south and just in between after the lunch sometimes he, we got together and coach read us, read us that books and I was uh, very motivated by the book of uh, about New Zealand uh, middle distance runner Peter Snell. Uh, in, in he, he, well, who was his coach? Arthur Lydiard? Or? Yeah, yeah, Arthur, yeah, Arthur yeah. Lydiard was his coach yeah. with his innovative methods. You know, aerobic uh, training was introduced. Actually, that I discovered that later. But I think the title of the book was uh, No Horns, No Trumpets, something like that. Or No Drums. No Horns, No Trumpets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, something like um, oh, no, no Drums, No Trumpets, something like that. And uh, it, it was a great book because it's really simply, uh, it shows how the, uh, the boy from ordinary family, you know, living not very wealthy you know, life, uh, uh, came to the top of, you know, uh, became four times Olympic champion. How, how he made it. Amazing story. Yeah, through the train, amazing story. And what's the most interesting, I met Peter Snell uh, in 19, I think, 93, when I became sports scientist. It was a conference in Finland, in the vascular, I think. And uh, uh, he was sports scientist as well, working in uh, in Texas, US. Uh, he mm. he became sports physiologist, Peter Snell, and we met. And I told him that <laughs> uh, his book was really inspiring and motivating. And he said, "I did not know it was translated to Russian." <laughs> 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 So, so, so just for the listeners, the, the, the book, I just gave it a quick look up. It's No Bugles, No Drums by Peter yeah, Smell and yeah, Garth Gilmore. Yeah, and it's, it's, still, it's still on Amazon. 
Yeah, that's great book. I would really recommend it uh, as a motivation reading, you know. But let me guess, it wasn't translated into Russian, was it? Or was it in English? No, of course it was translated uh, into Russian. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah because wow. all, the whole series of book was uh, in Russian. Mm. Uh, Stars of World Sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically it was uh, quite a lot of books about the most famous, you know, athletes, including, I don't know, many Olympic champions. Yeah, but that was specifically motivated. I don't know why motivate uh, motivational book. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So what did what what uh, what tripped you? So it was Peter Snell. It was was it something about Arthur Lydiard? or was it just the stars and sports? No, no, no. It was about different sports in athletics, in yeah. gymnastics, and uh, speed skating, art skating. I remember and about rowing. Yeah. And uh, it was a few books. I think uh, uh, also it was quite good book about three times Olympic champion uh, Vyacheslav Ivanov, uh, single, yeah. single scholar, who won Melbourne, R Rome, and Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, and, uh, and he he had of course the great battle with the Australian scholar, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it was also quite quite good book. Yeah, but this is, I think, this is what helped me to get motivation, and uh, also uh, to 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 train not only hard but all, also smart. You know, they could, mm. especially I think in in that book about Peter Snell, it it was described how you know innovation in the sport training why uh, could be the reason of his successful uh, results. What, what did you glean from that to be the, the success of his approach? Because you, you touched on Lydiard, the aerobic approach, and we're, we're jumping ahead of what got you into rowing. But I think it's good that we just, you know, zoom in on this because you've mentioned it a couple of times now. What do you think was the, the, the key reason why Snell was so successful other than his, you know, unbelievable um, physical conditioning and probably genetics uh, to be honest I, I don't really remember now the specifics and that time i really didn't understand i was just a kid you know maybe 10 years mm. 10 11 years old and uh, inspiration came from you know from his approach you know in some uh, very you know simple and detailed description how he was going step by step from uh, from the boy, uh, country boy, like uh, <clears throat> like the same age I was, and then progressing and training and what happened in the end. <laughs> so <laughs> that time I didn't understand really the you know the training principles and methods as a, as a child. Yeah. So maybe we'll come back to those training principles and methods, what your thought is on that. Let's go back to when you were, you were in the boarding school. So take us from there. You're swimming, you're, you're at the school. Yes. What happened next? Swimming and um, then uh, I was, um, results went down. I changed because when I went to the boarding school, they changed the coach because it was dedicated coaches and that school, it was probably didn't work well. And results went down so and then um, just occasionally i met 
actually the, the wife of my first coach in rowing and she invited me to her husband group, you know, and I just switched immediately to swimming uh, one day, just uh, next day after swimming, I went to rowing. I really liked it, you know, because it's much, uh, I found it much more fun in rowing than in swimming because in swimming, what you can see, it's only the bottom of swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> the, the black line thing. black line it's miles and miles and miles and you smell that chlorine oh, uh, couldn't agree with you more yeah, that's what that turned me off as well evaporation from from the water uh, and i found rowing is much more enjoyable sport you can look around uh, on the banks and uh, and it's also team sport. You can you can be you know in in the team boards to, with your mates and uh, much more entertaining. And I had no doubts uh, I should do rowing. And uh, because of in swimming, I got quite good endurance and uh, coordination, flexibility. Uh, I was very successful straight away in rowing, basically. Just after uh, probably nine months after I started, I came second in single at junior national championship, uh, lost only 0.1 seconds like that. And on the second year, it was 1975, uh, I became world uh, junior world champion uh, in rowing. Wow. In court, yeah. wow. Wow. And what, what distance was the, the, the juniors raced over then, Valerie? Uh, I think it was 1,500 meters. 1,500 meters, yeah. yeah. And that's 1976? No, uh, we went to actually to Montreal, Canada. It was like pre-Olympic um, trial event for uh, Olympic rowing course. And it was junior world championship. And in the quote, uh, we won gold medal. Wow. So, yeah, it was quite successful. Next year, I, I competed in the single, but... Uh, uh, regatta was in Austria in Klagenfurt but I came only fourth um, leading uh, until last 250 but then it was big lake I don't know I, I got a crap and something <laughs> went not very well and I came fourth without medal in single at junior championship and then you you then what was the next steps going up to the the Olympic Games? What nineteen eighty? Yeah, but before that, actually, next year nineteen seventy seven, and I still think that was my uh, greatest success. Being only eighteen years old, I won national championship, uh, USSR uh, Soviet Union national championship in a single. Wow. So if you just compare with... In the steps of Ivanov. Yeah, yeah. The same age as Ivanov. And uh, it, it was just like uh, I got to the 
to the moon, to the sky, <laughs> straight <away. laughs> from the bottom. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Wow. 18 and, and the fastest person in, in the yeah. USSR. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What were the expectations like after that from yourself and from your coach? And- uh, actually, it, it was quite funny because as a junior, uh, we were training to uh, like um, – not junior, but under 21. That time it was under 21 category mm. national championship, uh, which was two weeks before adult championship. But I came only third at, at that uh, under 21 because uh, now I understand I, I was just overtrained. It was so hard training, ah. a lot of hours, a lot of lactate training. And then I just got uh, two week. Uh, recovery, two weeks recovery, rest, and uh, I won the adult championship. Beaten, beaten those people who uh, were in front of me, maybe 15, 20 seconds. So it was like just fantastic improvement of performance. And uh, the person who was came second, actually also very talented um, scholar, Nikolai Dovgain. He was uh, fifth in single at, at Montreal Olympics just a year before. He was two times world champion, junior world championship in the singles. And then we uh, uh, rode together in the quad for uh, Moscow Olympics three years later. Yeah. But, but that year um, after he beaten me, uh, because uh, national championship was not selection. Selection was before. So they sent him to world championship in Mon- uh, Amsterdam and he came third in single. Uh, got wow. bronze medal uh, after Percy Karpinen and um, his German guy, I think, uh, his name, Dreifke, I think. So why didn't, why didn't they just change it and, and select you, Valerie? I mean, you, clear, you, you walloped them by... 15 seconds or something. Well, because the selection regatta was in May, you know, the national championship was in, in July and uh, world championship end of August. And on, at selection, I was junior and nobody uh, took me seriously, you know, I was 18 years old. And uh, I, I was, I think I was quite close to... Uh, to, to be selected, but uh, uh, I thought, no, it's maybe too early. And then it was like great performance. And it, uh, that time I also got a very nice technique, which actually I never repeated again. You know, it was some fantastic feeling of the board and it was really uh, easy, actually. Win at the board, just flying. Mm was flying mm. and then mm. and then from from there what uh, what happened next um, after that I was included actually in national team and nation national team actually we had the camps basically all the way year all the year around starting from October November we had the camps uh, on water camps were in Mingichar, which is Azerbaijan, uh, south of uh, Soviet Union, and some uh, cross-training camps also. 
In, uh, in summer, it was usually Lithuania, Trakai, or uh, Bistanos. Very nice. What would you do for cross-training? Right? Yeah, for cross-training, we what? went to uh, uh, high altitude. Uh, I think it was Tsakhadzor in Armenia, also in the south of Soviet Union. Were you doing skiing or, or rowing? Skiing, oh, yeah. skiing, yes. It was mainly skiing, but also they had a rowing tank and uh, gym, weight training. It was, there was no ergometers that time, so basically it was skiing. Thank God. Uh, rowing tank and weights. So what did they? So the Soviet Union already figured out there was an advantage to training at altitude, then back then. Yes, yes, we used it actually. Uh, we had that um, location and for cross training and for on water training. We had uh, somewhere in Chechnya. We had a uh, high altitude lake, and we, sometimes we went to uh, we go there in the summer, but. In fact, altitude never works for me well, and that's uh, quite difficult. Was difficult time for me in national team, and uh, now just looking back, I never progressed when I was national team. It's really strange because. What, what do you reckon that was due to? Maybe was that? I mean, not not your reaction to altitude, but why why do you think you didn't progress when you were um, in the national team? Overtraining or the schedule too. Yeah, I think too, it's too much for your body. Or yeah, I think mainly overtraining. And um, uh, now I just uh, just uh, the atmosphere, you know, this the spirit. Uh, I'm maybe my personal personal um, qualities as well. I I like to train on my own and just listen to my body. And at a national team, it's always discipline. You have to wake up at certain time. Then you have to do a lot of, you know, con uh, time trials, all sorts of tests, and uh, which actually, uh, I think, destroy the, the training process because basically you, you must be always ready to, to compete, to perform. And it's it's yeah. not possible, and it's, and uh, yeah. So and my results went down. So next year, I think I was uh, somewhere took fifth place in the single, and but won the double uh, next year. And then '79, I came second in national ranking. So that's uh, allowed me to to be in like in the national quote. Yeah, but uh, always remember it was very difficult time in Soviet Union national team, very hard training and um, a lot of time away from home. And uh, my study actually I, after school, I went to sport university and it took me eight years instead of normal four to complete, complete, wow. complete the university. But uh, I still learned a lot from it. And I think it was quite good system as well because uh, they call it free schedule. So basically whenever I have time, I, I, when I, uh, I came from, from the camps, from the national team, I could, you know, do some uh, uh, classworks or exams or whatever. Uh, 
and they, they help helped me a lot. And, I, and now the most of my knowledge actually came from from that university. I think it was quite good educational program. We did basically everything uh, needed for uh, for people to be a coach yeah, and even uh, to be a sports scientist. We did physiology, anatomy, uh, anatomy at the level of medicine. So that means mm-hmm. we've been working with dead bodies, you know, with corpses and mm-hmm. study all muscles and uh, bones, ligaments, everything. And biomechanics, psychology, and uh, the most essential sciences for for the sport yeah i think uh, i learned a lot from university uh, and then when i finished university in night it was already 1984 i straight away i went into post postgraduate scholarship also in st petersburg uh, and start doing my phd it was uh, i actually after university i have to do my military duty <laughs> ah, of course. So, How long was that? Yeah, so it was one and a half years, and it was quite funny as well. I was always unlucky with something, you know, with some sort of protection and, you know, some uh, getting benefits from my achievements, you know, because uh, top athletes uh, in Soviet Union they didn't do military duty because they were uh, like formally. Uh, uh, some somehow connected to some, they call it sporting uh, army sporting teams, and they, mm-hmm. they continued training without any disruption. You know, it was just officially they were at military duty, but it was no change for their life. You know, they continue the training, but that uh, yeah. that time somehow that was some conflict of of uh, bureaucrats. I don't know. So they they took me from <laughs> from my training life from the sport and uh, sent to uh, to the top north you know Norwegian border behind the polar circle. <laughs> I hope you like the cold. <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny. No, it was not so cold. It's not Siberia. It, it was, but it was dark. And of course, you know, uh, living in in, in the army barracks, it's difficult, you know, to continue training and basically, yeah. So I had some. So, so Valerie, just just going back a bit though, when, what when did you actually start thinking that you wanted to be a get into science, doing the biomechanics, the the physiology, the psychology? What wh- when did that start? I think just gradually it was, uh, I was actually quite good in math uh, in school, I said. And um, just going back a little bit, after I uh, finished swimming, they kicked me out from the boarding school. And I went for one and a half year to, years to special mathematics school. It was also the system, not only in sport. Was some special schools for like for math, physics, for arts, mm-hmm. and with some extended uh, lessons in that area. And I spent year and a half at mathematics school, and then got back to boarding sport boarding school as a rover already. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, 
and I really like math, mathematics, and physics. And uh, I just reading the book like like kids, uh, you know, reading the books about adventures, about you know the pirates. I I was reading the book about math and physics and chemistry, and really enjoy that you know new knowledge. That's what I still enjoy, you know, to learn something new. And uh, just uh, to to understand how nature is organized, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when you when you finished uh, your schooling and you've 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 done your military service, what what happened then? Were you still interested in staying in the in the Soviet Union or or Russia, or were you interested in in? looking elsewhere no that time it was uh, it was very difficult to leave soviet union it was i uh, finished 1986 and until 1991 basically uh, to go abroad you have to have special you know permission from local communist party bureau something like that uh, sort of exit visa and mm -hmm. uh, so it was very difficult to leave the country. And I didn't think about that. Actually, uh, when it was Soviet Union, the, the career of, of scientists was, was quite prestigious, you know. It, uh, the scientists got very good salary by that time. And uh, that, that was another reason why I chose to be a sports scientist. Because it's an interesting job, good salary, you know, nice uh, way of living. But suddenly then everything changed in 1991. Different country, different, you know, lifestyle. The borders were opened. And uh, the prestige of, of the science went down dramatically. And mm -hmm. that was the reason... I decided to leave the country because uh, not only because my because of money, but because of um, very low social uh, ranking. You know how to say it. Um, yeah, uh, you stand, you're standing on in the yeah, social spectrum. Yeah, social spectrum. Uh, not very respectable, you know, career. You know, because okay. Okay, but that, that was a bit later. Let's finish about 1980s. Um, Go for it. Yeah, so basically in Rowan also uh, in the middle of 80s uh, during my military duty, uh, it was some good results. I think the last time I won national championship in the double in 1985 uh, after being, uh, you know, uh, behind the polar circle. Uh, I trained really, really hard. I won it again, but but got nothing. You know, they didn't include me to national team for some I don't know political reasons. You know, political, uh, not big political, but because my coach, our coach, was not in good relationships with head coach and <laughs> something like that. <laughs> really silly, you know. Yeah. Uh, for us especially so we got nothing missed that year uh, for international regattas and uh, next year basically I finished in 1986 uh, I thought oh, that's enough because it's 
I was just not really interested. I, un I understood that um, uh, my my uh, target, my goal was to to become Olympic champion. And as soon as I understood that um, it's it's not possible, <laughs> not 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 very, not very likely. I, I just finished because the lower the lower targets it was just not interesting to me. I found other you know goals in the, in my life, and sports science became my goal. And uh, now I'm really happy about it. Valerie, when you look back at the, the work that you did in the rowing, and you, I just wrote down a note that you highlighted uh, when you came back and won the national championships, you were probably rested. Um, and you look back with the knowledge you have now, what observations do you make of the, the training that you were doing in the 80s in reflection there? Well, to, to the current standards, it was just crazy training uh, to me. And uh, I think in East Germany, in GDR, they did it better. They, I think in early 70s, they understood. And then it was quite, uh, became very clear that the same results could be achieved with aerobic and anaerobic training. But the difference is if you do aerobic training, the athlete is progressing from year to year. So uh, like aerobic threshold increases, uh, VO2 max increases. And in this way, the, we have really great athletes. When you do anaerobic training, uh, it doesn't happen, you know. And that's what we did a lot in, in Soviet Union. Uh, we did very crazy workloads, like as I remember, like 60 times by 500 meters pieces in a wow. single, 60. Uh, coaches mm. just laugh, laughing now. <laughs> or, yeah. or 30, 1,000, something like that. Yeah. And uh, it was really uh, silly uh, by current standards. And what kind of work? So, in, in terms of volume, how many hours would you be training a week then? Oh well, uh, very often more than thirty, uh, even thirty-four, thirty-six hours a week. Basically, the the, the full working week, you know, which is thirty-seven hours, and we we were getting close to it. And and how much proportion of that was anaerobic? Um, difficult to say, um, um, some training sessions were only anaerobic, basically you know, pieces, pieces and pieces. And, um, uh, I think, uh, um, just try to remember my diaries somewhere, maybe 10, 15% of, uh, anaerobic training, which is a lot. Mm. That is a lot, especially when you're thinking that's that's a time perspective. So on, re on, on reflection back, that was a mighty, mighty workload and probably cost you a lot of, other than the political um, shenanigans, probably cost you a lot of victories. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sure that cost us a lot, not only me, many other people. I remember 77 when I was, uh, I won national championship. 
they they took me as a spare to world championship and their correlation was uh, minus one like the uh, crews who completed the whole training program they missed the final and one wow. crew won uh, world championship that year it was coxless pair uh, and they they uh, one guy was sick they they missed the the most of uh, <laughs> fast pieces and aerobic uh, you know training and they won and uh, so it was completely reverse proportion. The more it was very clear, but then they repeated that mistake over and over again. Crazy, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I, I was listening to a, to one of the pro cyclists um, the other day talking, you know, in reflection of they're not racing at the moment because of uh, COVID nineteen. And he said that some of the best races he did were coming back from an injury, like breaking a collarbone where he had two or three weeks off. And then you look at uh, some of the, like Matt Heyman won Paris-Roubaix after he uh, broke, his, broke his arm and he was forced to take a break and then came back fresh and won races. Mm -hmm. And often the, the, the athletes today, I don't know about the swimmers, but certainly the cyclists, they're getting a lot, a lot better understanding on how to be fresh. Yeah and how important it is to, to balance uh, the fatigue before major events. Yeah, uh, I hear the many stories like that. I think one of them was about Mike Spracklin's group, uh, which uh, got poisoned and um, he was really uh, furious, but then they won Olympics because of the rest. <laughs> <laughs> dear, 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 dear. So did you did you work with uh, Mike Spracklin? Not really, no. <laughs> what what are some of the countries? So if we can just fast forward, maybe Valerie, for you're in, you know, around the the nineties. When when was it that you left uh, Russia, and where did you go to? Uh, yeah, basically, I uh, after finished my rowing career, I became PhD uh, student in nineteen ninety one, exactly at the year of collapse of Soviet Union, I defended my PhD. And I thought uh, now I, I will, my life will be, should be good because, you know, as I said, scientists in Soviet Union were quite well paid people. And, uh, but uh, suddenly everything was uh, turned upside down, you know. And uh, in nineties, when I was actually PhD and head of uh, rowing department in Sport Institute in St. Petersburg. My salary was something maybe eight, ten times less than street cleaner, you know. So, <laughs> oh. so everything went upside down and um, uh, I had to do a lot of other jobs. I was working as, you know, uh, everything I can do as a taxi driver and uh, the worker the graveyard and um, uh, tourist guide in St. Petersburg because, you know, it was a lot of tourists. And actually it gave me good, uh, some practical, uh, practical uh, ability to practice in English because <laughs> it's still not so good. But uh, to be honest, I never uh, studied English in the school. I studied Spanish first and then basically I learned it myself. 
And then I just practiced with tourists in the 90s in St. Petersburg. But that was enough uh, for me to find their uh, advertising on internet and in Australian Institute of Sport about, and I, I decided it's, that's exactly my job because that's um, roving biomechanics, that's exactly what I was doing. And I already had a few publications in uh, scientific journals and uh, also in English. And I visited a few conferences, FISA coaches conference in 95, 96. And I just applied over internet, at, I think it was 97. And then it was a few interviews over the phone. And so in March, 1998, uh, myself, my wife, and uh, um, two of my young children, we went to Australia, and I knew no one when we went there. So, Did, was that down to Canberra? Yeah, yeah, straight to Canberra. And... And what role did you take up there as biomechanics? Yeah, it, the official title of, uh, of the job was Rowing Biomechanist. And tell, what's, what's a, how do you describe a biomechanist, uh, for, especially for rowing, to the listeners? What, what's your main role as a biomechanist? Yeah, the main uh, job is to, you know, to do measurements, you know, uh, to use some equipment, sensors, uh, telemetry system, uh, which is uh, uh, we put on the board and then do measurements and an analysis and try to help coaches and rowers, you know, to row faster, to, to be more efficient. And that that's the main point of this job. And and that's and they were already clued onto that, were they, at the Institute of Sport, that that's what they needed in order to help their athletes to go faster? Uh, yes. As I said, uh, in Australia, I found uh, at least the first two years uh, before Sydney Olympics, it was just a great job because I work only, uh, I've been working only with throwing, these top uh, rowers and the crews all around the country. So because the, that, that time the national team was scattered around the country. So I had to travel basically everywhere. Queensland, Sydney, Melbourne, Tasmania, uh, South Australia, Perth in Western Australia. And uh, I was traveling with my equipment coming somewhere and uh, doing testing measurements and uh, analysis feedback and i was able to work with the best rovers and coaches in the world and i remember that time i met no donaldson brian richardson uh, reinhold bachi you may hear, you oh, may hear yeah. about him yeah. he was head coach and as and i learned a few uh, quite hard lessons from him because he really likes dis discipline and uh, <laughs> always try to be well organized and when I came you know the equipment was not so sophisticated sometimes it didn't work uh, I remember uh, once I just uh, missed 10 minutes setting up the board and he said no sorry 
finish. No, no testing your late. <laughs> wow. So from that time, I decided I'd better come uh, an hour early and I'll be ready uh, half an hour before rather than uh, make athletes and coaches wait. <laughs> well, because yeah, Reinhold had a pretty good reputation, yeah, yeah. didn't he? he? Coached the the gold medal eight. Yes, uh, was it 1986? I think it was. The Aussies won the won the eight, and uh, then of course uh, Dono, apart from making fantastic Anzac biscuits, also had uh, a great talent with uh, coaching the the four, didn't he? Yeah, and, uh, awesome, foursome. Yeah, and. Yeah. They were yeah. awesome. I learned a lot, especially from Noel and from from his uh, guys, uh, Jimmy Tompkins and Drew Gin, because mm. uh, they really like biomechanics. They like the, all those, you know, numbers and curves, and they try to use them in the best way. And I remember I was spending a uh, few days with them, and we repeating testing and uh, analysis every time they try to change something to improve technique and then they try to see the the data how it looks um, biomechanical from biomechanic perspective it was great the great experience for me so Valerie I mean you've this makes my head ache actually reading some of your uh, scientific papers and I've got to say for the listeners if you want to go to bioro.com you can look at uh, Valerie's work going back to I think 2001 you've just got piles of publications there and there's a few things I wanted to dig into but maybe we do that on another podcast but just for interest what were Noel Donaldson Jimmy Tompkins Drugin looking for you say they're looking at the data to go out and make some changes what would they actually be coming back and looking at to see if there's an improvement what were they trying to what data points were they, were they looking to to move well that time uh, the primary uh, variable was uh, the force curve of course they tried to uh, to make the force curve you know the, the really quick increasing at the front uh, also, mm -hmm. I remember very well their expression about the catch. They, uh, Drew said, uh, the legs must be fast by flight. And <laughs> Sorry, say again. Did I hear you correct? Fast the, yeah, light. the legs work at catch must yeah. be fast but light. And actually, that was, uh, was really good uh, information for me. And then I was... I started thinking about how it's possible, you know, to, to make. And I came to all those ideas, catch through the stretch, you know, catch factor. When you kick, kick the stretch just a little bit before the blade get, gets into the water, that's what makes it fast but light because you accelerate the masses of the, uh, of the rover relative to the board before taking the load. And that it makes it much much more efficient. So what you're saying, in my my understanding, is that by that fast but light connection of the foot on the foot stretcher, so you're kicking the boat a little bit, creates a movement of the mass in the in the in the rower, which then translates to a, a feeling sensation of lightness. Yes, that yes, that's correct. Okay. 
Interesting. And did that actually show up in the data as being faster as well, or is that just a subjective feeling? Yes, of course, because um, um, I made a lot of innovation, actually, when I came. I started measuring, for example, seat position. When I came to Canberra, uh, only or angles and handle force and board speed, of course, and acceleration were measured. But then I started, you know, adding different variables. I added seat and trunk velocity uh, to just to separate body segments, how they work during the drive. I added vertical or angle to, to see the blade work in the water. And uh, also I've done a lot of, in terms of, you know, analysis, programming and um, uh, this sort of developments. So at that time when I was working with them, I, I, I already measured seat travel and seat velocity and they start looking into it. And of course, of course it reflects what they're doing, what they're trying to change. Mm. And what was the importance about the seat positioning? What, what was your determination there? Uh, first of all, the shape of the seat velocity curve, it must be really uh, steep at, at the front, at catch, really fast uh, increasing of the legs velocity. And of course, synchronization is important. Uh, two rowers and two rowers in the board, they have to do it together because they are connected through the stretcher. And, you know, many of, you know, small details, because when you see it quite often and every time you compare with your feelings and what you try to achieve also, plus video, uh, it gave you a lot of information for your brain and um, it really helps, you know, to understand better what you are doing and to improve. Mm. So you, you're with Noel Donaldson, Reinhold Barchi, you're with the, I don't know if Reinhold was still the coach then leading up to the Sydney Olympics, was he, or was it Noel? Uh, yeah, Reinhold was still there. He was head coach at AIS. Uh, Noel, I think Brian Richardson was national head coach at Sydney Olympics. And Noel was coaching. Uh, actually, Dugin got back injury uh, that year, so Jimmy Tompkins was in a, in a pair with other guy. I don't remember his name, but Noel Donaldson coaching was coaching that pair. And and how long were you with the Aussies there? Uh, I spent with, uh... actually seven years in Australia, uh, ninety eight to two thousand five, and then uh, how it said. Um, Paul Thompson actually was also the coach in AS. He was coaching women's eight or uh, women's um, women's group, women's pair probably. Kate Slater and uh, Rachel Taylor. Actually, they were Olympic champions in in Atlanta four years ago. Before that. Uh, and Paul Thompson went to UK, became coach in um, GB team and uh, they invited me to the conference. I think it was 2004. And uh, I think we understood each other. And I think I decided, oh, 
it would be good to 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 work you know here in in, in great britain because australia actually after sydney the system uh, has been changed in australia uh, i became responsible for either sports as well uh, because i was hired as a proven only by mechanist but then i think in 2001 I had to work also with like archery, uh, Paralympic sport, uh, downhill skiing, uh, some other sports. And uh, I was not really interested because, you know, biomechanics is very sport specific. It's not like physio physiology mm -hmm. or psychology where lactate is lactate everywhere or nutrition, you know. The food is similar. But in rowing, in, in biomechanics, uh, it's, if you go from rowing to swimming, it's completely different tools, you know, analysis, completely different biomechanics. It's not possible to be effective in biomechanics working across many sports. So I felt it just was, uh, I'm just losing my time. This uh, basically yeah. that sort of uh, work of of cameraman just to what I did, uh, for example, in archery, uh, just set up the camera, high speed cameras, and just filming and then uh, <laughs> play and video. What did what yeah, what did you do next about yeah. that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Valerie, just going going back to to what you observed in that seven year block. In in Australia, and I re I remember them fondly actually. In the in that period of ten or so years with with the rowing, it seems to be quite distinctly different to what we're seeing now. And I'm referencing specifically the the stroke rate and speed and some of the technical differences than they were say a decade ago. When you look at what's going on with with that rowing, and I, I realise I'm saying this in full knowledge that you've got some several articles, publications on the correlation between rate and speed. What what are your thoughts there with regards to that? Looking back at what how the boat was moving then with with Jimmy and Drew, and now how the you see them clipping over the course rate 44 in the pair or the Coxus four or even the single. Yeah, they're all in developing, of course, and now it looks quite different from, from uh, you know, like it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I'm still not sure because it's very difficult to predict. And in my newsletters, I all, uh, you know, I always do analysis of the stroke rate and, you know, uh, which, which increased dramatically last few years. But I'm not sure if it's uh, temporary or long-term long trend. I'm still not, only in the future will show us. And um, I, I, you know, I used to operate with facts. At the moment, there is not enough information, not enough to, to decide. Is it long-term trend or is it uh, maybe just a fashion? Because, uh, yeah. you know, the, the reason could be very simple. You remember uh, Robbie Manson set up world record time. I think it was uh, 2017 in Poznan, 6.30, 
raising the stroke rate 40 all the way to K. And uh, the people may just copy him, you know. <laughs> that mm -hmm. could be it's simple, yeah. as simple as that. And they found it's easier, you know, to throw a bit shorter, shorter catch and higher stroke rate. But if you look at the last year uh, final of men's single uh, in Linz, uh, we had actually five single scholars uh, in one second. So basically it's nothing, yeah. you know, less than one second. Uh, and uh, the, the winner, uh, Oliver Zeidler, his average stroke rate was 40, but he overtook overtook only a bit more than half a second Lithuanian rower uh, Grisconis, uh, who raised uh, four strokes per minute less, 36 average stroke rate. So I think the, the question is still opened. What's more efficient? And uh, unfortunately, this year we can't, <laughs> can't compare them again, maybe next year. Yeah, but we, but we will see. So let's wait and see because um, still not clear if you want to improve further and uh, what's easier to increase stroke rate from 40 to 41, 42 or from 36 to 37, 38. I think the second option is uh, looks quite more, quite easier, you know, to do. Mm. And why, why is that, Valerie? Why is that easier to go from 30, 36 to 38? Is it something to do with rigging or you're talking physiologically? Or Well, rigging can be changed, but um, there's a number of, number of uh, factors here. Uh, maybe the breathing pattern, because the... Uh, uh, the breath cycle is actually linked to the stroke rate, uh, to the uh, stroke cycle. There are two, usually it's two breaths in and out uh, per one stroke. So that means stroke rate 40 means 80 uh, breath cycles per minute and 36 only 72, which means eight less. But again, it could be deeper and I'm not sure what's better for physiology. It's, it's not exactly my area. And uh, biomechanically, uh, when you increase stroke rate, inertial losses increases as well. So nobody can raise 50 and 60, simply even with very light gearing. Because it's... Is that because of the change in yes, direction? Yes, yes, because in rowing we have to change direction and we have to spend energy for that... Uh, change the direction of the masses of the relative movement of the board and the rower. So 50 and 60 definitely not efficient, but what's the most efficient stroke rate? Still not clear. Is it 36 or 38 or 40 or maybe 42? So somewhere in this range, there is some um, effective, the most effective stroke rate. But again, it's related to physiology, breath and pardon, to uh, probably biomechanics as well, to uh, length of the drive, uh, mass of the athletes, probably for lighter athletes, the highest stroke rate, 
debate or other way around. I don't know. Still, still, mm. still not clear to me. More yeah, testing more required. Testing. And I'm, I'm sorry, mate. I, I, I took you off your story when you moved to to GB. Uh, I'm just conscious of the time as well. So maybe we we move on to to completing your story, and then I think that uh, some of the listeners will probably. Um, Want, want to know a little bit more about uh, what they can do differently with masters rowing. So we could serve that up as a, as a Valerie uh, interview number two, <laughs> if, you're, if you're okay with that. But I was just saying, why don't, why don't we move back to your story about uh, the, the UK moving to the UK and through to present time. Yes, okay yes, of course. Um, so, uh, yeah, in 2005, I left uh, the job in Australia and got a job of actually it was sort of promotion because in GB, my position was national biomechanics lead in English Institute of Sport. And uh, I was responsible for a group of um, other biomechanists which were working with other sports uh, uh, all around the, the country. And uh, so, again, I, we, we came to GB and uh, it was also a great experience for me because I was in, in GB, I, it was also great athletes and great coaches. I, I started working with Jürgen Grober, who is the most successful uh, rowing coach in the world of all times and learned a lot from, from him, uh, not in biomechanics, because in biomechanics, I think, in rowing technique, Jorgen is quite, uh, how to say it, conservative a little bit. And he still be, believes in, uh, you know, all the East German concepts and ideas of rowing technique. But uh, in terms of, you know, organization of the team, motivation, uh, collaboration of the coaches, coaches, I think that that was the strongest point of his, uh, his coaching and uh, because he was able to organize other coaches to work together, exchange information. And I think this is really a great tool because, you know, the coaches, they are competitors as well. Normally, coaches, one coach would never say, you know, uh, any of his secrets, his know-how to other coach because <laughs> other coach can beat him mm. uh, next regatta. So it's not really easy and trivial task, you know, to to organize collaboration between coaches and exchange of information and to to get national team to work as a one team, you know, really one team. And I think Jorgen was very good in terms of that uh, team working. And yeah, it was a great experience for me also from these other sports. But again, uh, my job description was like 50% in rowing and 50% uh, sort of admin duties like um, evaluation, uh, hiring of the people and uh, firing them, 
and uh, it was good experience as well because uh, I learned how it works, you know, the administration system in uh, in uh, in general and in, in sport. But it's again, it was not exactly what I wanted to do. I really wanted to 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 mm -hmm. be efficient with rowing and spend all my time. And uh, yeah, that was one reason. Another reason that uh, somewhere. After Beijing Olympics 2008, um, the, it was really diff became really difficult to publish anything, and I think the the conflict. Really, what was yeah, going on? because there, uh, someone in the, in administration decided that uh, my brain belongs, you know, belongs to the organization, and <laughs> and. Uh, this my newsletter, for example. I found that newsletter is a great tool, first of all, not only to show my ideas, but mainly to get feedback from all sorts of people, from coaches, from rovers, from sports scientists, and to make sure my, my ideas uh, worthwhile. They, would they, would they correct or not correct, you know, to, it's like peer review, reviewing. Uh, Article. Yeah, exactly. And and but what what so Team GB we're not comfortable with you sharing uh, knowledge and information that might give us. Yes, yes, exactly. They said your ideas belongs to us. I said okay, very good. If you use them, so but what if you are not using them? What should I do? Should I let them die? And uh, if I have no feedback and uh, you, some coaches even don't understand what I'm talking about because you know, some level of, I don't know, but separate story. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah. the second interview. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Over a beer. Yeah. Over a beer. Yeah. Yeah. So finally I left the uh, Institute in 2009 and uh, start doing what I'm doing now. I, I work for myself, a small company by a row. I work across uh, the whole world from China to US and Brazil and and with many countries. I'm really happy now with what I'm doing. And the more I know, the more I understand that <laughs> how much I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, don't yes. we all, mate? Don't we all? So what are you doing right now? Who, who, if you don't mind, are you allowed to share who you're working with right now? Well, uh, currently all sorts of analysis work um, on, on water data. I'm analyzing on water data. Recently I developed um, HDF, which is handle drag factor. And I think it, it's very good indication of uh, heaviness of the, rover, of the rover's feeling. Uh, if it felt heavy, for example, heavy gearing uh, or bad condition, weather conditions, headwind, HDF is high. And uh, we are doing um, some, you know, uh, Zoom conferences with my colleagues, uh, Volker Nolte from Canada, some other people using uh, Biro telemetry system in Brazil and uh, Canada in China and we discussing some technical points, 
to help them, you know, to do measurements better and easy, and also some biomechanical points about uh, HDF, uh, proving efficiency, power next, next meeting, next Monday will be, it'll be about power and rowing. And also I'm doing, of course, a lot of development work on instrumentation sensors, electronics, programming. It all require, you know, mm -hmm. uh, some upgrading, development, you know, it's ongoing process. That's what I'm doing now. And, and uh, so tell me, if you, if you look at what um, uh, Masters Rose are doing with rigging and all that, and the, do, do they have access to, to your literature or advice with regards to how they should rig the boat? Um, a lot of people asking questions, you know, I'm, I'm 75 kilos on this height. I'm, I'm a lady that's, that's just starting sculling. Uh, are they able to to connect with you or go to one of your websites to find information to help them take those decisions? Uh, yeah, my dot website is uh, is opened, so there's a lot of publications, newsletters, information. Also, uh, if you look somewhere in the bottom right, you can see, see the link to what we call um, rigging chart, which is quite my old development. Mm -hmm. Uh, now I've used yeah. that a bit, Valerie, and those, those numbers—they can come out a bit tough. They look like you—you've got a pretty, pretty heavy gearing on that. Is that—is um, that still current? What you're using with the the, the calculations there? Or is that relevant for a masters row, or is it more of a a heavy weight elite row? I think um, it's uh, it should be other way around. It should give you very light gearing for masters because uh, <laughs> maybe I'm just yeah a the man. outboard and all length actually directly proportional to the board speed and actually the power and because the masters they usually don't have high erg score and they they not very not as fast as you know elite rowers. That's why outboard and uh, rigging chart gave them uh, much shorter outboard and oil length. So I, th I think it should be lighter. But of course, the inboard proportional to and span proportional to body height. For shorter rowers, it gives you shorter inboard and span and very short oars, which is not really practical. But my point, uh, rigging, uh, I think the best way is to use some, you know, more or less standard recommended rigging, which you can find in FISA website, World Drawing, or, or mm -hmm. somewhere, uh, somewhere else. But my main point, the technique is usually much more important because uh, when you increase uh, catch angle one or a couple of degrees, it makes much bigger difference than you change the oil lengths one, two centimeters. Yeah, that, that's... Yeah, I, rem I remember you reading, uh, reading yes. that your publication, so you increase the catch angle. So if you can get in front of the work at a greater angle, more compressed and you're connected earlier, you will have a far greater impact on the distance the boat will travel than mucking yes, around with yes, the oars. Yes, of course. 
So I'm just yeah. uh, now I'm I'm I'm, I'm saying in general uh, like rowing technique, uh, mm. stroke length, your blade work, your body segments uh, coordination, force curve. They could be uh, if you change them, they you can be much more efficient rather than changing you know the rigging one two centimeters. That, that's my point. Uh, human body in the center and all equipment is like secondary. So if, if you look at the situation that everybody's in, the, the season has been postponed or at, at, at best it has just been pushed back and people have got a lot more time to practice on, on training. What would be the one piece of advice you would give them uh, from you've seen the, the, U, the UK You've seen the Aussies. You've seen, you know, the great. You've worked with the great coaches, uh, Grebler, Nolte, um, you know, Dono, etc. What would you say that masters rowers need to focus on for the next three or four months? There's no racing. Um, what you know? What would you be looking at saying? Well, as a my general comment? comment would be just enjoy yourself, guys, because <laughs> uh, you know. The thing is, uh, I'm in uh, my I'm 61 now, and I form a rower, and this is quite common. Uh, not, not uh, quite a few top rowers in the past. They 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 compete in as a masters, to my knowledge, and and this is simply because it just just um, enough races in your life. And uh, the targets much lower, you know, it's not like Olympic targets and uh, it could be not interesting for this sort of people. But I'm not saying it doesn't make sense for anyone else. I understand that race, racing is sort of motivation for masters. Yeah, but my motivation is just, as I said, to enjoy myself. I'm doing fitness, I'm, I'm running, I'm doing Ergen on concept RP3. I'm going on water sometimes in a single or in a crew boat. And I just uh, feel my body better during it and after it. It's effort. It's different sorts of motions in the life, so nature, you know, water, sun. And that's what I'm enjoying. <laughs> and yeah, they, they get easy and just enjoy yourself. I understand for someone, races is good motivation, you know, to, to, to train hard, they need some, some goal, some target. Okay, I'm going, I need to beat that guy on the <laughs> next club, uh, neighbor club, uh, next regatta. That good, could be good motivation. But uh, sometimes actually it's dangerous for your health. Too you much, know, too often. Yeah. Train so hard uh, in old ages. Too much yeah, uh, could be not good for your health. But uh, now if you can't race, you just enjoy yourself, enjoy river, the sun, uh, physical uh, physical training, uh, tiredness after your training session, recovery, and... Uh, uh, so, Valerie, one, one last question for, for the listeners. And and longer. I'm going to schedule another call to dig into 
get into the weeds with you about rigging and boat setup and all those things that, you, you know, we might get some questions from the mm -hmm. readers. But you're very well read. You're very well published. Mm -hmm. If you could recommend one book that uh, we go and buy to read over the next few weeks uh, with regards to our wonderful sport, which one would you suggest I, I go onto Amazon and buy. And, and it's not your book, Valerie. You can't recommend yours. <laughs> What's that? The Biomechanics of Rowing book. No, of, no of, course not, of course not my book. Yeah, yeah. So what book would you recommend uh, to pick up or any book? You're asking about rowing, rowing book. I would recommend um, the book, you know, it's called Advanced Rowing, uh, edited by Charlie Simpson, my good friend, uh, uh, professor in Oxford, Uni Brooks University. It's actually a collection of um, some stories from the coaches, Noel Donaldson again, Thomas Paulson, my good friend as well, Danish, Danish coach, and uh, some parts of physiology and biomechanics yeah i think it's pretty good book advanced rowing yeah, i would agree with that that's charlie simpson, uh, charlie simpson Flood, is a editor advanced rowing yeah and yeah that's that's a very good book so i'll include that in the show notes yes fantastic valerie where can people find you on social media websites yeah. etc how can they connect with you Uh, you know, the problem is because I'm too focused in my own work and I'm not really uh, active in so on social networks. I have Facebook and um, so I think it's better if you go to my website and just write me directly. And remind us your website. Directly. I think this would be the best way. So it's just yeah. one word, bioro.com. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Valerie, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I Dot think uh, we need to, A, have a beer together and talk about a few things that we won't podcast, but we do need to get together and um, talk a little bit more about some of the specifics, I think, uh, around your field and what you've seen helps to really make the boat go faster and some of the common mistakes that you see masters or, or any rower look at and you cringe but i think we'll we'll reserve that for uh, another call i really thank you for your time and you you're always so welcoming to to help and talk with me i really appreciate it and i'm very grateful for the fact that you you've helped australian rowing and uh, all the all these great uh, athletes have such success which a lot of it is is due to the impact that you've had so i'm thanking you again Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill, for talking to me and taking your time. I also really like it. And thank you, Valerie. Until next we'll time. Thank talk you very more much. together and next time. Bye-bye. Join me next time, where I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and courses by visiting whchambers.com.